good evening and welcome to At Humber. I'm Kelly Luke. Today we look at Humber students patiently waiting for sports programs to resume in the fall. In the meantime, Humber's own Neil Kiyoshi Yakura is heading to the Tokyo Olympics this summer. Toronto reopened its cooling centers as temperatures are expected to heat up. But what could this mean for climate change in the city? All that and more coming up on today's show. The Humber campus may seem quieter these days, as many students are on summer break, but that doesn't mean people can't learn new skills during this time. Humber College is offering micro-credential courses to help people gain specific workplace skills. Sarah Peak is Humber's Associate Dean of Flexible Learning and was instrumental in bringing micro-credentials to the college. At Humber reporter Christina Galley speaks with her to find out more about these courses. Can you tell me about the micro-credentials that are offered at Humber? Sure. We've been working towards and have adopted this micro-credentials principles and framework from eCampus Ontario. And there are some common features of micro-credentials. So number one, they really need to be industry-driven or at least industry-linked because the intention of a micro-credential is to provide a way for either employed workers or unemployed workers to reskill or to upskill or to develop rapid new skills when you need to. So instead of going back to school and taking an entire, you know, two-year certificate program, diploma, advanced diploma, to really target those very specific skills that are needed in business and industry right here, right now. So industry focus really need to be skills-based, competency-based. And you do that by, by compressed timelines and by really focusing in on a specific skill or competency that might be needed again in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, at Humber, we really feel that it's important that a micro-credential includes an assessment. So in other words, you don't just get a micro-credential for breathing in the back of the room. You have to demonstrate that you've, you've gained something, that your, your work life, your skill tool set has been changed as a result of the work that you're doing in the micro-credential. So in some cases, a micro-credential could be stackable. And one of our goals at Humber eventually is that there may be stackable micro-credentials that lead into a traditional credential. Um, And then the other things around them, you know, how much learning or training is involved, that really depends on what the skill skill or competency is and how complex it is, how much time it will take to become proficient. So are timelines different based on the type of credential that a person is working towards? Yeah, it would be different for each micro-credential. And and in some instances, a micro-credential might be defined with a particular number of hours. Our own provincial government has specified that micro-credentials, the ones that they now approve for OSAP eligibility, are uh, less than 12 weeks in duration. Mm-hmm. And so that's reasonable. You're, you're, you're not taking a full credential, you're taking a segment that's very specific and very targeted. So when the province announced funding for micro-credentials, they kept calling them digital by design. Uh, What's the difference between this and online learning, or are they the same thing? So there are forms of learning that are really intended to be delivered in an online form, and then there are forms of learning that have been developed for a face-to-face format and then have been converted to an online form. And they can be different. Um, I would say that in some cases, micro-credentials will be digital and will be available as online learning. And that's part of the strategy about making them available and flexible. You know, you don't need to attend on Tuesdays at three in the afternoon. You can do this on Friday at three in the morning if you want. <laughs> um, 
But there are some micro-credentials that really are going to depend on some face-to-face. -face, and so therefore, you know, the digital doesn't necessarily translate. But, but really, digital, digital by design, I think, really refers to the caliber of instruction and the quality of instruction. And when you're building the micro-credential, that it begins with that, uh, that digital quality as opposed to kind of retrofitting, you know, something which had been developed for another format. Do you think this will change how people go about getting a post-secondary education because upgrading their skills has become more accessible with micro-credentials? I hope so. I, I mean, that's for sure one of my personal interests in micro-credentials is that it expands access to post-secondary for people who haven't yet started, and it continues access to post-secondary beyond your, your credential. And the job market changes so much, as we've seen, especially over the last year with COVID, that there are no there are no guarantees. And so that continuous learning is really something even more important today than it was even 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I think micro-credentials are an enormous way that um, post-secondary institutions can plan for that and can help learners to, to really extend um, their careers beyond their, their credential. But for someone who's never been to college or university and who has a full-time job, doesn't have the time to leave their employment and go full-time to school, a micro-credential is a really good way to laser in on a particular skill that their current employer needs. And that's why we have stackability as one of our goals, because you take one, you take another, you take another, and suddenly you've got a number of micro-credentials that together might um, add up to credit that you can use to shorten that timeline to get a full-time credential. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's letting people test post-secondary education in a new way, and it's really getting the skills training to where it's needed the most at that moment in time. For Humber College, the school semester is fast approaching, which also means sports. But are varsity sports really coming back in the fall? The athletic department is hopeful sports will begin, but as they patiently wait for the green light, there may be a few changes for the upcoming sports season. Danielle Dupree speaks with Sports Information and Marketing Coordinator Brian Lepp to see what the department has prepared for its student-athletes. How is the college prepping for a potential season come fall? Uh, well, we're we're prepping that it's going to happen. I think right now we feel like it's going to happen, but obviously, like so much could change, right? So, so we're 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 getting ready as if it will be a year of sports. So we just don't know everything about it, right? So we don't know if every sport will be back. We don't know um, how long the seasons are going to be, but we have the OCAA has been working to make uh, basically contingency plans for every stage. So if they're shortened seasons, they they have that ready to go. Because a lot of it depends on how these stages are for with the government, right? So where they want us in, uh, you know, stage one, two, three, how many people you can have in a bubble, that kind of stuff. I know the league's been working really hard at looking at every scenario, every possible scenario and uh, kind of getting ready to go from there once we get closer. And as you prepare for this upcoming season, has Humber Athletics been recruiting any new athletes? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're still, we're we're obviously recruiting because obviously without recruits, we don't have any teams. But at the same time, like they're, they're coming to school. There's a lot that goes into that still because uh, Humber College is a no 
exactly what's going to be online and what's going to be in person. So then that hurts some of the kids that would be coming from out of town, right? Because you need to get a place to stay. Uh, you got to figure out all those logistics and whatnot too. So, and then without knowing if there's going to be a season, you know, it's kind of a, a big step for a lot of these kids. I know you mentioned that the OCAA has plans in place. Have vaccines been a topic of conversation? Do student athletes need to have one in order to play? Oh yeah, there's been lots of conversations about vaccines. Like we actually, we just made a vaccine PSA video for uh, for Humber because I don't think it's mandatory. The college isn't going to make it mandatory, I don't think. But the OCAA is separate from the college, right? So the OCAA can make it mandatory to play. Um, I think they're kind of weighing their options right now. Uh, obviously, you don't want to, like you can't force someone to take a vaccine, but they want everyone to be safe, right? They want to, we want to get back to doing like what we've been doing the last 50 years. So I think they're weighing their options. I, I'm not sure I'm not in on those meetings. I got my first one and just so that I could get my second one in time, just in case all this, we do get back to sports, right? And we're ready to go. And for those teams who normally start their tryouts in the middle of summer, is Humber College going to be able to go forward with those tryouts? Um, I don't think so. So what, because what we're kind of hoping is that the province gets back to normal first, right? So we want baseball start, we want softball, soccer on the provincial level, right? So Ontario baseball and soccer and softball. Once those get started, then they basically will give us a green light, right? So I think that basketball and volleyball will be pushed back later because everything's probably going to be pushed back because of, because of like what you said about training in August, I don't think there's going to be that. So I think sports will start in the middle of September if we do have sport they'll probably be condensed schedules and they'll probably be less travel so sports that actually didn't have divisions they'll probably have divisions now and then you'll be playing the same team multiple times but it'll be less uh they won't be staying in hotels and stuff like that i think it's they're gonna try to keep all that to a minimum but i believe it'll all be pushed back and during all of this have there been any big conversations that keep coming up one of the biggest discussions is return to play about health and safety right so you can't just go a year and a half two years without playing in sports and expect you can't put these athletes back in a gym and expect them to, to be the same right so there's there's a lot of soft tissue injuries and stuff you got to deal with they want everyone to have enough time to get back to where they're capable of playing at a high level baseball and soccer if they, they return the summer these then these athletes are playing and um you know you're kind of working your way up so once baseball starts for for humber our athletes will have already been played for a couple months so that, that they'll be ready to go and even right now you're just basically waiting for the green light and just a little bit more clarity on how to plan for the fall. Right. Well, because like every day you look at the news, it's always changing, right? So we're in stage one, they're talking about stage two, and then there's talk about skipping stage two because we're so far ahead of those numbers. The OCAA has got everything covered. So it's not like when it comes around where they're going to be unprepared. I mean, we just need to be ready to uh, go once it does happen. So right now we just, once we get commitments from schools, we'll start going ahead like everything will be coming back to the most part. It might be condensed. There might be a couple sports that so because some sports are, are tougher than others, right? Like uh like rugby. I think with uh, you got the scrums and all that stuff, right? And you got a lot of people touching each other at the same time. That might be tough. But if rugby starts playing this uh this summer, I don't see why we wouldn't be able to either, unless there's a commitment thing from other schools. Brian, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today about what sports could look like for Humber College come the fall. No problem. That was Brian Lepp, Sports Information and Marketing Coordinator at Humber College Athletics. A fitness and health promotion student and athlete at Humber College has qualified to play in the Tokyo Olympics. Scarborough's Neil Kiyoshi Yakura will get a chance to compete for gold this summer by representing Canada 
in the badminton team. Sabrina Danielli speaks with the athlete about his journey from a college athlete to an Olympic participant. How does it feel to be going to the Tokyo Olympics and what are you most excited about? Obviously very happy, very excited. Um, something that I've kind of set out for myself at a young age since I really started taking this the sport seriously. So I was probably about 13, 14 when I told myself that on day I would go. So it uh, definitely feels like, you know, everything that I've worked towards is, is paid off. And yeah, of course, uh, I'm excited just to just to be going, you know, experiencing the, the environment, like the, the athletes village and being around all the other athletes. And of course, just, uh, you know, competing at one of the biggest events, especially for badminton. I think it's, uh, it's known in badminton as the biggest event for us. So definitely, definitely happy about that. How long have you been preparing for this moment in the Olympics? I would say after the Pan Am Championships, which was at the end of April, that's when, you know, we, we kind of knew because that was the deciding tournament for us. Uh, so we knew from then until, yeah, from then until the Olympics. So, you know, a couple months we've been putting in probably around, some of us have been putting in around five to six hours a day. Um some more than others. I think some do it like maybe six days a week. Some of us have, you know, different uh, preferences. So for me, I'm I'm about four times a week doing that, maybe about five five hours, and the other days two and a half, three hours. Yeah, still still pretty heavy. Since Tokyo was originally scheduled for 2020, did this extra year give you more time to practice? Uh, yeah, I actually think for for us, uh, it was. Most people kind of have to take the pandemic as a, a loss, you know, for businesses and, and whatnot. But, you know, luckily for us, it allowed us to, it gave us that extra year of training, of proper training. You know, we're home, we can train and really focus on things as to before when it was, uh, you know, constant tournaments of traveling. We'd be gone four to six weeks at a time for back-to-back tournaments. Uh, you can only get so much training done uh, there. And most of the time, I think almost all of us are there without our coaches. Not really anyone to, to be guiding us out there. We're kind of on our own, just kind of helping each other. So uh, what inspired you to get into badminton? Um, I started at a, like, uh, out of a, kind of a high school that was run by one of the coaches at the high school. This uh, coach was coaching the high school team, I guess. And at the same time, he had a club run out of that high school at nights. Both my parents play badminton, so my parents definitely got me started uh, just to just for fun. So they brought me out to that to try, and I was I guess it wasn't that serious back uh, at that age. I was about nine, maybe like March of 2016, March April. I moved to another club, which is where I'm at now, is KC Badminton. So I heard you went to Humber College and you played on the badminton there. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, 2016 is when I enrolled at Humber. So I kind of just eased off of the badminton a little bit to, to do some school, but I was still training a little bit. And uh, I graduated high school in 2011, so it had been a, a while, about five, five, six years since I've been to school. So it was, a, it was definitely a nice experience. It was really fun. The, the staff and everyone made me feel like very comfortable. Uh, I think Humber's uh, one of the best schools of taking care of their athletes you know they they made sure with my schedules and my courses and everything that I, I was getting getting the help I needed uh you know making sure my 
a load wasn't too much. So yeah, everything was really fun. The team was very welcoming. Uh, the team was very fun. They had a good staff around them too, like the physios and, and everything. I never, even though we're part of Team Canada, we don't really have, you know, physios and stuff. So definitely nice to have that kind of resource to work with. But yeah, it was uh, definitely uh, one of the funnest years I've had in the last, like, 10 years. Is there any words of wisdom that, you know, you would tell, you know, young badminton players who are uh, who are new and up and coming and want to achieve success and go to the Olympics like you one day? Yeah, um, for sure. It's uh, as cliche as it is, it's, it's basically how hard you want to work and, you know, you have to stay committed and dedicated to it because obviously I've been doing this for 15 plus years um, and I, I just... I just made it now, so it's a long time, and it's a lot to, to give up. It's just, you know, a lot of uh, dedication to it. That was Humber student and badminton athlete Neil Yakura. For Humber Radio, I'm Sabrina Danielli. The Canadian women's soccer team will soon be flying up to Japan to open the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. At Humber reporter Victoria Mayer has more. In their fourth Olympics appearance, the Canadian women's soccer team is hoping to make history once again with another spot on the podium. Canada is the only country to win a women's soccer medal at the last two Olympic Games, both times earning a bronze medal. Although this was the first time since 1908 that Canada consecutively won medals in a team sport, the women are eager to finish with gold. Women's soccer is split up into three groups, each with four teams competing to earn the most points to advance to the knockout stage and further on to the finals. Canada is in Group E, along with Great Britain, Chile, and host nation Japan. Bev Priestman, the coach for the Canadian women's soccer team, has no doubts for the team and believes they'll be successful. The reason behind this is because Canada still has their superpower, Christine Sinclair. She is known as one of the best soccer players in the world and holds the record for most goals amongst both men and women. Kadisha Buchanan, one of Sinclair's teammates, has grew up admiring her and now they play side by side. Playing, playing alongside of her and playing and watching her play, like, the amount of goals she scores, like, it's ridiculous. Like, she's, she, she has um, all around, like, great player. Sinclair has accomplished a lot in the team for more than a decade, but some fans are concerned that Canada relies too heavily on her. She's 38 now, so she is nearing the end of her career as a footballer, and this will be her last Olympics. With that being said, the upcoming Games gives the perfect opportunity to see other players shine and prove that they can be Canada's next big star. With Buchanan in mind, she says that she's still learning how to be a leader. I think it's the most when um, when our team changes, um, when people retire, that you always find, like, who's going to step up, who's going to be that that person for our team so I think as the team changes you find it's like how can you can you step up so I feel like right now I'm still I'm still um learning how to be a leader though no one is nearly as impressive as Sinclair on the attack Canada's defense has proven strong Buchanan a young player originally from Brampton seems to be Canada's key for surviving opponent attacks I'm still I'm still improving a lot and then I think that's and that's what's keeping me satisfied and stay sane as well, that I'm still able to, to find ways to, to better myself. She and the team are ready to take on all other opponents that get in the way of them and another medal. And then on the field is obviously fierce. It's, it's, it's tough. It's um, competitive, very competitive. 
and uh, it's always a good ambience and atmosphere when you're on the field um, because all the players are are top level and you just want to be that for yourself as well. You always want to be at the top of your game for every session. Women's Olympic soccer begins two days before the opening ceremonies on July 21st, with Canada's first game against Japan at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For Humber News, I'm Victoria Meyer. Now you've probably felt the climbing heat and humidity this week. Environment Canada issued a heat warning for Toronto this past Monday. Unusual and extremely hot weather that will not last more than two days can be expected for the city. In response, Toronto opened eight emergency cooling centers, which were closed in 2020 because of the pandemic. David Phillips, a senior climatologist at Environment Canada and Climate Change, believes Toronto could experience several heat waves until August. At Humber reporter Nathan Christian sits down with David Phillips to find out more about how heat waves and climate change are affecting Toronto. The heat wave warning that was issued on Monday, do you think there are possibilities of another heat wave? Well, for clearly right now, presently, we're into a cool snap with some rain. But boy, we've had already more days above 30, if that's a mark of a hot day, uh, certainly in the last, um, since May, June, and uh, and early July. So we've had a few, uh, more than we normally would get. But my gosh, the, the hot days of the summer are still too, too come. I mean, we typically uh, warm up uh, the what we call the, the warmest moment usually occurs at the third week of, of fourth week of July and the first week of August. So my sense is even though we're going through a cool period, some Canadian air right now, we'll see some American air where it will be warmer and more humid. But I mean, clearly we won't see the kind of record temperatures we saw out west. There's a certain ceiling on how hot it can get here. But hey, um, I don't think it'll be as warm as last year. Last year we had 36 days where the temperature got above 30 and some of those got really up to 34 or 35, where we normally would see about maybe 16 of those days. So my sense is we'll have more than normal, but I don't think it'll be as excruciatingly warm and more comfortable uh, this year compared to last year. Can you tell us how heat waves are formed? Well, I mean, there's two ways. I mean, typically we saw last uh, uh, 10 days ago, we saw the heat wave in the West was a kind of a a ridge, a high pressure area that the air just sits there on top of you. And it comes down, it sinks from the higher levels right down to the surface. So it compresses the air and and warms it up. That's sort of a heat dome. You see, it's like putting the uh, Rogers Center over top of uh, British Columbia and Alberta. But here in the East, our heat waves come generally through something called the Bermuda High. It's a feature that uh, comes a little further north and west and it sits there. It's like a heat pump. It draws this warm, moist air in from the south, from the Gulf of Mexico, uh, from uh, Atlanta, from Florida, and it brings in it. It's very steamy and hot. And sometimes Toronto can be as hot as Miami and uh, it's very humid. So you don't see the humidity out west, but you see it in the east. So the temperatures don't get up to the 40s like they did out west, but the humidity, the humidex values are very hot. And so it makes it very difficult it's not good for our bodies. There's certain stress. Uh, people suffer under that kind of heat wave. It's more like jungle heat as opposed to desert heat. Desert heat more out west. We get more the jungle kind of heat. The heat, they often say in Toronto, it's not the heat, it's the humidity that, that gets you because you can't breathe as, as well. And at night, the humidity stays high and the air is, there's not as much ventilation. So my sense is we suffer in heat waves, but they don't last as, as long as they did out west. They might go three or four days and then we'll get some cool Canadian air that, that we can turn off our air conditioning, open up our windows and, and, and live, uh, live, live a good life. Are there any best practices the province is doing to help the climate? 
Well, I think the, you know, there's sort of a push on two fronts. One is that we're trying to cut back on our, our fossil fuels. That's good. But I think we have to do something different that we're not doing as much. And that is to adapt, to get used to it, to say, to accept the fact that the future is going to be warmer. I mean, there's clear evidence that we're going, we're headed for warmer times. And so therefore, we have to do things differently, build an infrastructure to, to withstand that kind of heat, um, to, to maybe get away from always building asphalt and parking lots and and, and put more grass and more nature, natural solutions. I mean, parks and trees are a great way to provide shade and cooling and, and take out impurities in the air. So I think we need to let nature help us and not to sort of avoid nature or, or think nature's the enemy. Nature's our friend. And I think that one thing that cities can do is to, to we need to build a cooling centers to make libraries open longer. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do that don't cost a lot of money, but I think we have to be willing to make those changes. Coming to the realization that the climate of Toronto is going to be different in the future. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be longer summers. It's going to be uh, uh, more more humidity. And so therefore, um, we need to, to address that. And you know, air conditioning is not necessarily the answer because air conditioning requires energy. So it's like a vicious cycle. You want more air conditioning, you need more energy, and that's going to warm it up, you see. So I think we need to look at more natural nature solutions rather than artificial solutions. So do you think that it is just a short-term solution but not the long-term? Well, I think it has to become a long-term solution. I think we have to have make sure libraries and 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 uh, government buildings are accessible to people who who do uh, um, need that comfort, and not just from eight in the morning till eight at night. I mean, it's often the worst part of the heat wave is at after midnight, after night, when the uh, darkness comes and the winds die down, and and the body is stressed that much more. So I think it's going to be around the clock, and so I think that is um, something we have to uh, um, uh, consider to the the hours of the time and um, but but just try and make maybe more more water parks more uh, more um, uh, swimming pools playgrounds more hydrating areas that was senior climatologist David Phillips from environment Canada and climate change And that's all for At Humber. Today's contributors were Christina Galley, Danielle Dupree, Sabrina Danielli, Victoria Mayer, and Nathan Christian. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. I'm Kelly Luke. At Humber is produced by students in the journalism and radio broadcasting programs on 96.9 Radio Humber.